If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 20. We will be in verse 16. Exodus 20, 16 this morning. So, I get the amazing privilege of just being able to, to reveal to you, to reveal to you things about myself. So I'm going to tell you about Alex as a kid. Alex loved being a really good kid. Alex loved being seen as a really good kid. Yeah, I should kind of quantify that. I loved it when people thought that I was a good kid. It made me feel really good. I loved it when people would, uh, would tell my parents, you know, you've got a really good kid there. And I identified as being a, a really good kid. I hated being in trouble. Nothing would make me feel worse than when I was in trouble. If I had to face some kind of punishment, if I had to be lectured, if I had to experience the reality of somebody else being disappointed in me, that was really challenging for me as a kid. And so what happened when I was a kid and I hated being in trouble is that I would, like, you know, kids aren't perfect. In fact, nobody is perfect, right? We realize this. So I would, I would cause trouble, right? I, would, I was not, like, just because I had this identity as a good kid does not mean that I was like a good kid all the time. I still caused trouble. I still created problems. I would break things, right? I did all of this. I had these kinds of issues, and what I would typically do is when somebody would come to me and ask me, hey, you're doing this thing wrong, or hey, why did you do this, or hey, why is this thing broken? Sometimes, eh, maybe more than sometimes, I would blame somebody else. Oh, right. <gasps> I would blame somebody else, or I would let somebody else take the fall. I would not own up to the wrong that I had done, right? Because... I was okay. Like, I wanted to protect my identity as a good kid. I wanted to avoid being in trouble. So whatever I could do to avoid being in trouble was really, really good for me. So, so interesting. Uh, I was uh, with my grandmother um, in my grandparents' house. I would spend pretty much every morning, actually, with my grandparents before I went to school. And I was a curious child. I would grab things that I shouldn't grab. I would play with things that I shouldn't play with, and my grandma had this decorative, uh, it, it was like a piece of styrofoam that was painted, but it was like a decorative wooden spoon hanging on her wall, and so as a kid, I was like, I walked downstairs, and I had never, I'd seen this thing, I'd walked by it millions of times before, but it was just sitting there, and so I was like, yeah, that looks like a cool toy to play with, so I grabbed it off of the wall, and I started swinging it around like a sword, right? And I wasn't hitting anything with this decorative wooden spoon, but I, I swung it really hard, and then I stopped it suddenly, and the top of the spoon uh, kept going. So it, it, it kind of flew off, but it didn't go, it didn't like fly across the room. It, it like hung there by like a thread, right? So it kind of just fell to the other side. And so I took the end of the spoon and kind of picked it back up and put it on the end, and then I, I hung it back up on the wall, and it stayed there. And nobody, like, nobody ever talked to me about it. You know, it was all good. I didn't have to get in trouble for it, right? So then a year and a half later, I think, something like that, my grandmother is talking, and she's talking about a younger cousin of mine 
who frequently causes all kinds of trouble when he is visiting and is known for breaking things. And my grandmother says, you know, well, he broke this and he broke this. And you know, that spoon down in the, I'm sitting in the room while she's saying this, uh, that spoon down in the basement, I think, I think he broke that and just hit it and didn't tell me about it. And I found it and I was like, yeah, maybe he did. <laughs> right, like, and to this day, I have never, my, my, uh, my grandmother passed away when I was 16 years old. I never had now have the opportunity to say, look at what I did, right? Okay, so, uh, so this was me. This was me. I loved to blame shift. I loved to, um, I loved to avoid being in trouble, right? This is what my heart want, wanted. And my, my parents, because they're not dumb, they were aware of this tendency in me, right? They knew that, that this is what I wanted. So I have another story. Um, my brother was home visiting. My parents had bought some cookies. If you know me or if you get to know me for any length of time, you know that I really love cookies. I eat too many cookies when cookies are present. So, so the cookies were in the house, and, and you know, lo and behold, overnight, all the cookies are gone. And my parents think that I ate the cookies. Right? They know this tendency in me, and so they come to me and say, Alex, why did you eat all the cookies? Those cookies were for all of us. Why did you do it? And I said, I didn't do it. And I actually didn't do it. My brother, I said, I think Brad ate the cookies, right? I don't know who ate the cookies, but I know that I didn't do it. And if I don't love being in trouble when I do things wrong, I definitely don't want to be in trouble when I do things right, right? So I did not eat the cookies. I think maybe Brad ate the cookies. Now, my parents, knowing this tendency in me, they lectured me about how it's really important that I don't blame other, thing, other people for the things that I have done wrong, right? They, they, like, lay into me. It is wrong to lie about the things that you've done and let somebody else take the fall, right? So I just want to say, mom and dad, I did not eat the cookies <laughs> that time. That time, I did not eat all of the cookies, right? Okay, so my problem, this is my problem as a kid. I would, I would be willing to disparage the name of another person in order to stay out of trouble, in order to keep myself from looking bad in a particular way. So today's command actually hones in on this particular aspect of brokenness in the human condition. So we're uh, going through the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we have the people of Israel. And they're in Egypt, and uh, we see them that they are these, this oppressed people. They are suffering under the rule of Pharaoh. And so God shows up and rescues them. He performs this amazing thing where he actually pulls them out of their slavery. They had no hope of being rescued, and he pulls them out, and now he's going to make them a new nation. And, and as this new nation, they're going to have new ways of being in the world. They have to, he has to kind of completely rewire their understanding of what it looks like to, to live as a people. And so in the middle of all of these new ways of being in the world, they are going to have to ask a question, and that question is this. How will God's people reflect his values to the surrounding world? 
right? Because they're going to be a nation in the middle of a bunch of other nations. And all of those other nations are going to be looking in on them and observing them as they live. And they're going to somehow supposed to be representing this amazing God who performs amazing saving works, who is the creator of everything. And so how will God's people reflect his values to the surrounding world? And so the Ten Commandments in several ways actually help us to be able to answer these questions. Like, so, uh, so when the Ten Commandments come along, right, they, they, we get these different themes that can be laced throughout them. They reveal to us, like, what, how we can actually reflect God's values to the surrounding world. So interesting, the Ten Commandments laced throughout them, they actually show us that God has a high value on telling us what is true. And then telling us to honor that thing that is true. Right? They, they reveal to us what it means, like what things are and what things cannot be because these things are true. So what does this look like? Well, in the first, the first command, God says, this is I, you shall have no other gods before me. I am in top position. That is true. That is what is Nothing else can be in that spot because I am in that spot. Uh, number three, he says, you should honor my name. What is his name? His name literally means I am, which means like if I speak something, I am. Like the things that come out of me are always true, right? Like this is, this is just core to who he is. Uh, when he comes along and then in the like love your neighbor commandments in number seven he says like your spouse is your spouse and not somebody else's spouse and somebody else's spouse is not your spouse right he comes along and says this is what is true honor what is true right and then number eight we talked about this last week your stuff is your stuff. Somebody else's stuff is their stuff, right? This is what is true. Honor what is true. So, so the Ten Commandments actually display to us a high value for honoring what is, for honoring what is true. And that particularly comes into display in the Eighth Commandment. So in your Bibles, or sorry, in the Ninth Commandment. So in your Bibles, we encounter the Ninth Commandment. Exodus 20:16. It says this, "You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." So before we get too far into this, we need to recognize something that the commandment is not saying. There is a misconception that this is the commandment that says, "Don't lie." Like it's a kind of wholesale prohibition against Lying. This commandment forbids all lying, right? And this is, this is kind of how we think about this. And I want to let you know, it is not this commandment that forbids all kinds of lying, right? This commandment has a, a, a kind of different aim besides forbidding all kinds of lying. Uh, we see the value for honesty and honoring what is true in all ten of the commandments. But this command actually is not just about eliminating lying categorically. Now, why does it matter that I say this? Well, because actually, there, there are times, now don't run too far with what I'm about to say, but there are times when it is appropriate and even necessary to lie. And I'm going to tell you some scriptural stories to make that case. So Exodus chapter 1, back all the way when we started the book of Exodus, 
uh, we had these women, Shipra and Puah, the Hebrew midwives, and uh, the Hebrew midwives, Pharaoh has declared this edict that all of the, the Hebrew male children should be killed upon birth. As soon as they are born, they need to be killed, and Shifra and Pua, they refused to do this. They wouldn't do it, and so Pharaoh comes along and says, hey, what's the deal? Why aren't you killing the male children? And Shifra and Pua said that the Hebrew women are vigorous when they give birth, and we can't get close to them fast enough to kill the child, so we can't do anything about it. They're too fast. These women are too strong. Were Shifra and Pua lying? Yes. They were protecting life. They lied to Pharaoh in order to prevent him from from going further in his command. And so, in their lie, the very next verse, it says God dealt well with the midwives because of their faithfulness in this matter. So so that's Exodus chapter 1. Joshua chapter 2, we hear the story of Rahab. What happened with Rahab? Well, uh, the Israelite spies are coming into the land, and they are uh, kind of, they, ha- they need a place to hide, so they come into Rahab's house, right? And Rahab, she says, oh, the, the, you know, the officials hear that somebody is sneaking into the city, right? So, so the officials come, and they knock on the door, and Rahab hides the, these, uh, these Hebrew spies, and then goes and answers the door, and, and Rahab says, oh, they went they went over that way. They went over that way. You should go chase them because they went over in that direction. And so she sends them away. She lies to them, and the Hebrew spies stay in the house. And James 4.25 says this about Rahab. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works? It's speaking of, like, yes, she, she saw God's people, and she had this faith in them, and because she had this faith in them, she actually did something about it when she received the messengers, so received the messengers and then sent them out by another way. When she lied to them so that they would go in a different direction, her works kind of showed her faithfulness to God in this moment. Her work was to be dishonest in that moment. And then uh, 1 Samuel 16, that you got King Saul. King Saul gets, we're shown, he's shown to not be a good king, right? He gets rejected by God. And so Yahweh tells the prophet Samuel, hey, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna go anoint my new king. You're gonna go anoint him. And Samuel is like, bro, are you sure that's a good idea? Like, if, if Saul sees me anoint this new king, Saul is going to kill me and the new king. Like, you know that, right? And so, so God actually tells Samuel to do a little bit of misdirection about what he's there for. He, he tells Samuel, you know, you're going to be a little deceptive for Saul in terms of what your purpose is in going there. So I say all that to say there's actually, God makes space for some level of deception and misdirection when fallen people are seeking to harm his good purposes, right? But this is all according to his plan, and he gives kind of some structure for it. Now, I say all that. Now, we don't lie mindlessly. Like, this is not just wholesale permission for lying, because Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says this. 16 says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. A lying tongue is a tongue that has the characteristic of being dishonest again and again and again and again. 
hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So, so this command, as we're talking about this command, it's not a wholesale prohibition against lying, but God cares deeply that we would, in as, as much as depends on us, that we would actually be honest. We just need to recognize that there are actually times that require wisdom in Scripture as we look at it. Like, there are times that require wisdom when people actually are deceptive and their deception moves along God's purposes. So God seems to make space for this. This requires wisdom. But the reality of the fallen world is that sometimes it, it is right and God approves of the lie in that it advances his purposes. So, so if it's not categorically forbidding all kinds of lying, what is it doing? Well, it says, you shall not bear false witness, what? Against your neighbor. Right, so in his command, in, in God's new covenant community that he is shaping, God's people get this message. Yahweh cares about your neighbor's reputation. Yahweh cares about your neighbor's reputation. The God who saved you out of Egypt cares about the reputation of your neighbor. How important is reputation in the culture that the Israelites live in? Ancient Near Eastern culture. Like, reputation is a matter of life and death. Your name is everything. So uh, think of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. This is a story told in Genesis. Again, remember the commands. We can actually see them illustrated in the narrative of Scripture before we ever actually arrive at them in the Ten Commandments. So, so Joseph and Potiphar's wife, what happens? Well, Potiphar's wife is making all of these kind of advances with Joseph. She's trying to get Joseph to sleep with her, right? And so, so Joseph is like, I want no part of this. So Joseph flees the situation, and Potiphar's wife, what she does is that she lies about what happened and actually blames Joseph and says, Joseph was advancing on me. Joseph was making advancements at me. So, what, like, think of Potiphar's wife in this scenario. What was at risk if she didn't speak about Joseph? Like, what was she going to lose? Like, really, like maybe not much except her pride, right? Because she made this advancement and she was denied, right? But, but, she responds to it by speaking all of these lies about Joseph. And what does that result in? Well, it ultimately results in, number one, Joseph being out of a livelihood, out of a job. But then number two, it results in Joseph being thrown into prison for three years. He has no idea when, if he's ever going to get out of prison, what's going to happen to him. Like from his perspective, his life could potentially be over. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that false words about your neighbor do so much more than just hurt them emotionally. Right? Like we say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Actually, words are really, really powerful. Words have the power. If you speak the right words about a person, if you damage their reputation in the right way, words have the power to actually end a person's life and livelihood as they know it. So, the command then, if your words do harm to your neighbor, then you better make sure that the words that you're speaking are true. Like, if your words are actually going to harm your neighbor's reputation, then you better make sure that the words you speak are true. Our main point this morning is this. 
value their reputation as much as your own. Value their reputation as much as your own. So do you want to, like, like you want to talk about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Like, I want people to see them, to have a high regard for my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? (laughs) Right? Like, not just like our brothers and sisters here in the church. Who is my neighbor? The person that I'm most prone to hate because of uh, an ideology. The person that I'm most prone to hate because of things that they did in the past. You know, whatever it might be, the person that I'm most prone to hate, I actually want, I should want that person to have a good reputation. I should want that person to be, to, to have a good name, right? If you are a human being made in the image of God, then I should want others to think highly of you. So much so that I would only risk harming your reputation if you had truly done something that demands an honest response. That's the only category that would permit me to risk harming your reputation if you had actually done something that demands a response. So I want to ask you a question. Why would I lie to harm my neighbor? Right? Like what things would exist inside of me that would lead me to harm my neighbor? Again, as we look at the New Testament, and we've been doing this every week, we've been tracking kind of these ideas, these commands, these themes from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so the New Testament shows us that this is not just about words that we speak out in public, but it reveals the heart of the matter. It reveals what's going on inside of us. So in the book of James, James identifies to us a significant threat to authentic faith in Jesus. But that threat is not from anything that is coming at us from outside. Right? That threat to faith in Jesus is not people who are standing against us. That threat to faith in Jesus, he points to in individual hearts. James 3, 8-12. through 12. It says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Does he not carry the same theme over? Don't speak about your neighbors in these ways. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs. What he's saying is like these things don't bear the things that you're expecting. The thing bears what it bears because of what it is already. So I lie because, kind of two categories here, I lie because number one, I love blank more than I love God. Or I lie because I want blank more than I want my neighbor's good. Right, so, so what, what might fit into the blank? Well, maybe I love to appear in the know more than I love God. I want to appear in the know more than I want my neighbor's good, right? So I might say something or speak something that I don't entirely know to be true, but if I speak it in that moment and I get to be the person who reveals it to you, I feel powerful because I appear in the know in that moment. 
right? I love to avoid trouble, right? This is me as a kid, right? I love to avoid trouble more than I love God. I love to avoid trouble more than I want my neighbor's good. I love what I define as success, right? More than I love God. I want success more than I, right? So like I will, I will climb the ladder and I will be relentless in doing whatever I have to do in order to climb the social or the corporate ladder to, to look good. So I will put other people down in order to make sure that I don't get pulled down off of that ladder. I love what my comfort more than I love God. I want my comfort more than I want my neighbor's good. So like if you would, if I would be forced to, to own up to something that might disrupt my comfort, kind of my status quo, well then why would I own up to that thing? I'll let somebody else take the fall for that if it means I can stay comfortable. Maybe you love just simply like feeling superior, right? And you don't have to do this without right lying about somebody. You can do this in making assumptions about people. Right? So there are things that you might not know to be true, but you're going to speak those things. You're going to make assumptions about certain people because it, it makes you feel good and powerful to voice those assumptions because you feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm in a position where I can assess them, even if I don't actually know that what I'm saying is true. Right? So we might love anything more than we love God or love their neighbor. And so what does James tell us? Well, a spring can't pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. A fig tree can't bear olives or produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Right? So if your heart is salty, what is going to come out of your heart? Well, you might really want fresh water to come out of your heart, but the reality is, is it's just going to be salt. Right? You lie against your neighbor because your heart is against your neighbor. That's what he's saying. You damage with your words because your heart wants to damage with your words. Right, so, so something the New Testament apostles and writers were particularly aware of is that few things can jeopardize the integrity and the unity of the church like bearing false witness can. So, like, let's think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira for a second. Acts chapter 5. You have these uh, two people, uh, husband and wife. Um, everybody in this Christian community, they're selling all of their stuff. They're uh, giving the money to the church. They're sharing what they have in common with each other. And uh, so Ananias and Sapphira come along, and they say, we sold all of our stuff, and we're giving our money to the community here. Here's the problem. They didn't actually sell all of their stuff. They left some of it back. And so you want to talk about lying against your neighbor. Well, this lie, what like, yeah, they're getting themselves in trouble with this lie, I understand, but, but this lie was against the community and against the Holy Spirit. Peter says, why are you lying against the Holy Spirit? Right? It's, it's against this new community that God is trying to shape, right? To try to, try to form, to try to pull up new life as Jesus has, you know, uh, died and risen from the grave and sent his Holy Spirit to, to fill the church and be Christ's body on the earth. Ananias and Sapphira come along and they lie about what they're bringing forward and what's the threat with their lie? Well, the threat is disunity because what if they get away with the lie in this moment? Well, People find out eventually that they were lying. 
right? And if those people find out that they were lying, then there's a risk. Number one, those people are either gonna be prone to say, oh, they lied, maybe it's not such a big deal that I lie, or those people might even be, uh, you know, prone to start murmuring about what happened. Oh, you know, they, they lied, and I think Peter knows about that lie, and he didn't do anything about it. Does Peter really even care about, like, what's happening here? Does uh, that, that person over there, I saw them participate. Is that person making money over there? Like, people just start chattering and talking because they saw what happened with this lie. Like, that's the risk. That is the threat. So then what happens? Well, Ananias and Sapphira are exposed in their lie, and they both die on the spot, right? Like, God just acts in this moment. And then we, the summary statement of what happened is, everyone looked in fear of God. Why? Because at no other point in history, no other point in history, had human beings truly expressed what it meant to love your neighbor. But right now, God was building a community that would show the world what it means to love your neighbor. And the moment Christ's body starts lying against each other, that testimony dies. The hope of showing the world something good about what it means to love each other dies. So the New Testament has this incredibly high value on love and unity being displayed with clarity in the church. And if we love someone, it means that we care about their reputation just as much as we care about our reputation. So I'm going to meddle a little bit because when it comes to jeopardizing unity, actually, outright lies are not the most common way that we do this. Right, like outright lies against another person are not the most common way that we do this. The subtler form of lying that we don't always think of is words that are full of assumptions about other people. Words that would speak about possibilities of what other people might be doing or what we think other people you know, could be doing rather than actualities. Words that would, uh, you know, make judgments based on half-truths without recognizing the full scope of the situation. The New Testament has words for this called gossiping and backbiting, right? And time and time again, the New Testament writers speak against these things and they recognize that these will jeopardize the unity of the church. These will jeopardize this community that God is trying to build. And so, so if this stuff is allowed to exist in the church, then it's possible that that church could become a mockery in the community. It's possible that like the potential discipleship that could happen in that church actually gets mitigated because you're just playing damage control all the time to, to, to solve these relational issues, right? And then in that community, trust is non-existent. Like, people can't trust each other because we don't know if somebody's gonna make up something or if somebody's even gonna assume something and then talk to somebody else about it. And so if that's true, then the community has no chance of actually thriving, so Jesus knows this. Like, he knows the potential for this. And so that's why he actually, like, he taught processes for how we are to engage these things. 
Like, he actually gave us tools because he knew that this very thing would jeopardize the church. So Matthew 18, 15 through 17. He says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Like, don't, don't go and start whispering to other people. Don't go and start explaining to other people what happened to you. Don't go and start spreading around what happened. Don't go and start expressing your frustration. Go to your brother. Go to your sibling in Christ and tell them what happened between you and him alone. If he listens to you, oh, good news. Like, you've gained your brother. You, you, he's actually like, you, you, you got some agreement in this. You were heard by this person. And if not, well, guess what? There's a process for that. There's another step. So if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you just so you understand what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is applying the, the very incredible logic of Old Testament law in relation to witnesses to these situations of conflict within, within the church. Right, so, so with the Old Testament law, you didn't have a, a significant number of ways of gathering evidence about what somebody might do wrong. So you were required to have at least two witnesses to something going wrong, right? It was a requirement. Jesus is taking that logic and saying, hey, like the next time you have to approach your brother, if you can't resolve it between the two of you, take two or three more people with you so that you can go and address it. That, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if that doesn't work, well, guess what? There's another step in the process for that. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, right? Because now they have displayed a desire, like if this thing is not resolvable, somebody is displaying a desire to not be reconciled, go and tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Right? You spread it to the community. The community is now bringing, being brought into this process. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus, he wanted to ensure that we would never get to a point of speaking words about each other that might damage reputations, uh, engaging in a process that is laced with integrity at every level. Right? He wants to prevent the potential damage that could come from, from making assumptions about each other, from speaking those assumptions, from lying about each other by, by providing this process. And so when we engage this process, you know what it does? Like it prevents gossip. It prevents us backbiting. It actually gives us processes to engage where we would approach. A, and, and that, like... In the middle of this situation, nobody is left to wonder, oh, I wonder what's going on behind the scenes, right? Because, because the person who has the accusation against them and the person who's bringing the accusation, they both know the whole time exactly what is happening. Nobody has to wonder. So when we engage this process, it prevents gossip. And if we're not willing to engage this process, then we probably shouldn't open our mouths, or, like, even if we really, really think that the thing that we're bringing forward might be true, if we're not willing to engage the process, if we're not displaying a willingness to move forward with the process, then we probably should not voice the things that we have a concern about. So in the body of Christ, and for the cause of Christ, 
we should value the reputation of our brothers and sisters here as much as we value our own reputation. Okay, so that's how that plays out in the church. So then, uh, this is not just, this command is not just for the church, this is for our neighbors. So how do we take this and then apply it broadly? You know, have you ever thought, like, you have this question in your head and you're like, I wish God would just really give me that answer. Like, I wish God would really, like, tell me that thing that I wanted to find out. Well, guess what? Like, when we talk about applying this command, God pretty much tells us exactly how to apply the command. And almost, like, very soon after he speaks this commandment, in Exodus 23, he explains what it looks like to implement the principle behind the eighth command. So Exodus 23, 1 through 9, we're going to look at six boundaries for words about your neighbor. Six boundaries for words about your neighbor. So verse 1 starts and says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not spread a false report. So another way you could say this is don't propagate what might be true. Don't propagate what might be true. You actually have to know that something is true if you're going to take part in spreading it. So we know that Christians actually have a high value for truth, right? Like we establish our faith based on propositional truth claims about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, what he's done. We value things that are true. But when you diminish somebody else's name for something that might be true, it can't actually be said of you that you value truth. Because it's actually, it seems in that moment more important to you to discredit your neighbor than value truth. Right, okay, so uh, you shall not spread a false report. Don't propagate what might be true. Um, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. A simpler way to say this is don't be a liar's second witness. Like, determine the character of the person that you're working with. And honestly, like, if you haven't witnessed the thing that he has witnessed, you shouldn't be participating in supporting his witness anyway, right? Like, so don't be a liar's second witness. Recognize the character of the people that are trying to bring you into the process and say, no, I'm not going to participate in that. And, and for what it's worth, like when we engage in conversation with each other and I hear you talking about things that might be true, especially if I hear you in a context with other people around talking about things that might be true, but not actually like seeking to protect the reputation of your neighbor, I, sh I should speak to you and say, hey, I don't know if it's a good idea to be talking about that person like that because we should love them and seek to protect their reputation, right? So any neighbor, right? Like that is a good thing. So, so don't be a liar's second witness. In fact, if you get somebody who's coming forward and bringing assumptions to you, it's good to speak and maybe you, like if you have a problem with that person, you should go talk to that person, right? Okay, so don't be a liar's second witness. Number three, don't let compassion and equity, oh, sorry, sorry, I have to read the verse first. You shall not fall in love with the many to do evil, 
nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many as to pervert justice. So this is, this is essentially like you shall, I, I missed one here, but you shall not um, let the, the many determine the way that you move forward. Just so you have an awareness, these slides are going to be a little out of order, but I'll keep you on track for what we're doing here. So, so don't jump in just because the crowd says to jump in. If you know that something is or is not true, like whatever it might be, like avoid going along with the crowd. When the crowd brings an accusation forward, if you can't attest to the reality of that accusation, you don't participate with the crowd. So then number three says, don't let compassion and equity overrule truthfulness. That's now relating to this next verse, verse six. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So do not let compassion and equity overrule justice. We're in order. I'm sorry. I got my, uh, my notes out of order this morning. There is a verse before this that talks about siding with the poor in a case. So, so don't side with a person simply because he is poor. Right, You want to ensure that you are being just, not that you are siding with a person just because you think you need to lift them up out of a particular situation. This one relates to those who are rich and have power. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor, right? Your poor person wants justice in his lawsuit. Don't, uh, don't let influence and wealth overrule truthfulness right? Just because a person has a particular amount of power or influence, don't let that stop you from doing justice in the situation. Number seven, sorry, verse seven, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. This is saying, hey, issue punishment with caution, right? And what can punishment look like? Well, punishment can look like something as simple as speaking words that would damage your neighbor's reputation, right? And it could be something as complex as the death penalty, right? And in all of these circumstances, he's kind of running the whole gambit and saying, if somebody is going to have to face punishment because of what they have done, then you need to make sure that that person is not innocent, right? Because if they are innocent, then you are now speaking false, falsehood against that person. Um, verse 8. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. To state it simply, don't let anyone pay you for your words. So even, even if the thing is true, and you know that it's true, and you're bringing it forward, integrity would say, I'm not going to let you pay me to say those things. I can already say them because they're true. Right? But if you pay me to say them, now it can be said of me that I have been tied to your bribe as a part of my motivation and not because the thing is actually true. So here's a thought. Where would American society be today if we actually like practice these things together? Right? Like we have gotten to the place that we are today in part because we have not been committed to upholding integrity. Like politicians and people have not been uh, committed to upholding integrity in the ways that we talk about one another. So, so America may have kind of moved beyond this point, right? 
but we as God's people have an opportunity to display to our, our land, our country, this place that surrounds us, what it means to uphold these values. We can display love for our neighbor in valuing our neighbor's reputation as much as we value our own. Okay, so what, so what? I'm gonna wrap it up here. Number one, buckler. When you propagate political falsehoods, you damage your neighbors. When you propagate political falsehoods, you damage your neighbors. So I'm speaking like really specifically here about the ways that we use social media. There is a trend in social media that, that people, we will share things simply because they agree with our particular perspective without actually evaluating whether or not those things are grounded in truth, right? And when we do this, we damage not only our neighbors, but we damage the reputation of Christianity. So I'm gonna give you two big examples and get excited because I'm gonna address people on both sides of the political aisle for this, so that's good. Uh, Two big examples over the last year where this has played out. Number one, woke Christianity. So woke Christianity uh, basically says something along the lines of, if you don't accept my standards of intersectionality, like uh, my standards of an oppressed person, uh, and, and if I have like all of these oppressed identities that I should like get more because I am that oppressed person and I have all of these uh, you know, intersecting identities, if you don't accept that, if you don't agree with me that equity is justice, equity is not justice, but if you don't agree with me that equity is justice, then what you are is that you are a pillar upholding white supremacy in our culture, right? This is what woke Christianity will tell you. And they will say that about you regardless of who you are or what you think or like having a conversation with you. They don't even take time to get to know you. They say, if you don't check these boxes, then you already are promoting a system that... Uh, that is harming people in our society, right? And that's not good. So they will say that about Christians and non-Christians alike. They will label people, right? So that is, um, that's not actually knowing a person. It's not actually evaluating where they're at. It's promoting falsehood or assumption about that person without having all the information. So that's the one side of the aisle. I would say the other side of the aisle that can tend to come in are uh, QAnon theories, so Q is a political prophet who has been developing pro, uh, prophecies about this basic idea. I'll explain to you who Q is. Uh, he says things like, um, all, powerful uh, all powerful government Democrats, so, so Democrats in power in the White House and in Congress, they are in collusion with Hollywood elites to promote the largest single child sex trafficking ring that the world has ever known, and Donald Trump is the person who has been sent to stop them, right? So this is what Q says, and, and since 2017, there have been these things called Q drops. Q drops are general and specific. They range from the general and specific. So the general drops are prophecies about things that are happening or going to happen in Washington or in our society, and some of them are so general that it's easy to connect them to specific things that happen 
in the culture, right? But then the specific ones, when they don't happen, what generally happens is that uh, there will come an explanation for why that thing didn't happen, right? That very specific thing that was said, and it's because Q is trying to mislead all of the people who are looking in, right? So this is, this is what happens, and, and interestingly enough, like, Christians have jumped really on to QAnon in a significant way. And so in the early days of the pandemic, it was, you know, this pandemic is a hoax, right? I'm not saying that the government hasn't taken advantage of the situation, but people were actually saying the pandemic is a hoax, right? That Bill Gates was kind of controlling all of it, and like, this was what was happening. And, and QAnon people spread these things. So let's talk about the, the damage that both of these things cause, right? Woe Christianity and QAnon theories the damage that they cause is that they damage the reputation of others, right? They put other people kind of at the end of our, uh, you know, social media or media gun and, right, say that person is the, the problem or the cause without actually seeking to discover the truthfulness of the claim, right? So they damage our neighbors. But then number two, when Christians are lobbing missiles in our culture through political falsehoods, then what happens is actually like the rest of the Christians who aren't participating in that get damaged because the reputation of Christ gets damaged. Okay, so, so that's just something to be aware of just in, in how we, even in general, like social media has become such a like dumpster fire of, <laughs> of like not treating people well, not lifting people up, disparaging other people's names. So, so it's just something to be aware of. Uh, so what, number two? Take responsibility and give away credit. The principle of extreme ownership. So, so this, this principle says, if I am involved in something, if I am participating in something and something goes wrong with that thing, I'm gonna do everything in my power to own every single aspect of what I did that would make that thing go wrong. I'm gonna put myself forward as the cause of some of the things that went wrong, especially, I'm going to own 100%. Like, even if I only have 2% of the problem, I'm going to own 100% of my 2% and have an understanding of how it impacted the whole system. Instead of saying, oh, but I did my job, they didn't do their job. Right? Right, and so, so most people, what happens is that if something goes wrong, they will blame shift, they will throw somebody under the bus, they will avoid actually dealing with the question that comes to the responsibility that they have. So I want you to imagine that somebody, um, somebody comes up to me and asks, hey, why doesn't the church do this better? Like, fill in the blank. I don't know what this is, but fill in the blank. Imagine somebody comes to me and asks that. I said, you know, I've only been here two years. And so I, like, I don't actually know but there were other people, like, the church has existed before me, right? And, and so that's, like, I can't, I can't tell you why that is, but maybe you should go and talk to Pastor Don about that and ask him what he thinks, right? <laughs> right? Like, that doesn't look good. Actually, that, not only does that not look good, but then I'm actually saying, you know what? I don't have any responsibility in that, but he does, right? So why don't you go and talk? And that, that, goes against what we're trying to do when we're trying to promote the reputation of each other in the body of Christ. So what I do is I say, you know what? 
I, I have significant responsibility in that, and so I understand where you're coming from. I, I listen to the person. But the idea is that I would take responsibility. And, and so that's with me in pastoral ministry, right? But like in your job, you want to accept as much of the responsibility that can be yours to take. You don't want to play the blame-shifting game. You don't want to try to make somebody else look bad. You want to take responsibility and have integrity for what you can take responsibility for. And then beyond that, do everything you can to build the reputation of other people up. Like if other people have credit to take for something good that happened, you submit yourself wholesale to giving those people the credit that they have to take because you love the reputation that they have as much as you love your own reputation. Number three, Christ became a mockery to give us a better reputation with the Father. So who were we? We were cheaters, we were liars, we were concerned only for ourselves. We had hearts bent on self-promotion and self-protection, hearts that were not for God's glory or for our neighbors. But Christ showed us that even though we were not good, we were wanted. Even though we were broken, we were loved. How does he do this? The perfect son of God submits himself to people who lied about him, to people who spat on him, to people who made him out to be a criminal so that he could hang on a cross and pour out his blood to be punished for our cheating and our lying and our self-promotion. So that he takes Alex, who has this corrupt knee-jerk reaction to blame shift and want to look good in others' eyes, so I will, I, I will cause damage to somebody else's reputation, and I will seek to avoid blame in my own life. And he takes Alex, and he, he, sacrifi- uh, he sacrifices himself. He absorbs the punishment that should have come to me by dying in my place. And what does he do from that point? But give me a perfect reputation before my Father is in heaven. covers me. He presents me before the Father and says, yes, even though he was lying, even though he blame-shifted, even though he would sacrifice the reputation of his neighbors, I sacrificed myself for him. And he has my reputation now. So this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never believed in Christ, if you've heard a lot of things that you're going, oh my goodness, I think I might be a liar. Guess what? I'm preaching the sermon. And guess what? I think I might be a liar. Right? And we're, we're not called to stay in that. But the good news is that, that even the guilt and the punishment that would come towards us does not have to come towards us because Jesus can stand for us in our place and take that punishment and give us his righteousness. Right, so if you've never placed your trust in Jesus this morning, I would just call you. Like if you see yourself as a liar, if you see all the ways that you are bent towards self-promotion, Jesus offers something really, really good, a restored relationship with your creator.